next thing you hear will be theme music. Okay? Go for it. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. My guest today is the actor, singer, producer, writer, director, Brad Caleb Kane. Brad is the co-showrunner on the forthcoming HBO Max prequel series to the It films, based on the two recent films from the Stephen King novel of the same name. Brad has been on the Broadway stage, recorded albums of music. He's written for TV series like Fringe, Moonhaven, Warrior, Black Sails, and Tokyo Vice. And Brad is now officially, as of this moment, a card-carrying member, if only we had cards, of the full cast and crew Instagram Mutual Appreciation Society. If you're not familiar with that society, this rarefied area is for people I've met through the show's Instagram page, people who reach out often because they respond in one form or another to the content in the episodes. And in doing so, we form a mutual respect and an appreciation. And across that bridge, Brad and I come together today to talk about a movie I have always loved, a movie about making movies like so many of the movies we do here on the pod, Ed Wood, a celebration of and mournful ode to the costs, personal and professional, associated with the dreamer class pursuing careers in Hollywood, that churning, sharp-toothed grinder of hopes and ambitions. <laughs> Edward is an incredibly well-crafted, sumptuously scored movie, and in its choice of protagonist, the mostly guileless, relentlessly upbeat, filmically untalented, so-called worst director of all time, which he's not, the 1940s and 50s B-movie writer, actor, producer, and director, Edward D. Wood Jr. In choosing him, the filmmakers have, in my mind, chosen one of the most apt representatives for the delights, the agonies, the soul-sucking egotistical sacrifices required for most all Hollywood supplicants. Brad, welcome to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. And Please feel free to fawn effusively over our gathering here together. Thank you, Jason. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. You know, it's, it's, it's funny how this came about, which was basically a mutual friend of ours and, and, and someone we both like, a, an actor named Lee Wilkoff is somebody I worked with years ago on Broadway um, in a show called She Loves Me. And he sent, he sent out blasts to all his friends that he was going to be doing this podcast uh, and you guys were going to be discussing Carrie, Love it. which is, you know, Brian De Palma is, I know Lee Lee said he is not the biggest Brian De Palma fan. He likes certain Brian De Palma movies. I am probably the biggest Brian De Palma fan, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, and I oftentimes craft set pieces and things I'm working on um, based on, uh, you know, how, how he might do it. Mm-hmm. So I was very excited to listen. I didn't know that, you know, Lee liked discussing movies and I listened to the podcast and I thought that you were incredibly insightful, um, about what you said about De Palma, about the making of the movie. I love these kinds of podcasts and, uh, yeah, I just stalked you and I listened to more <laughs> stuff. I loved it. I reached out to you. I slid into your DMS as kids say, and, uh, you were receptive and here we are. It all goes back to Lee Wilkoff, like all good things in life. Um, yep. yeah, degrees of Lee. that was great. I, I loved Carrie. I, 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 one of the great things on doing the pod is sort of falling in love all over again with movies that you think you love and you do love, 
But when you dive in, they're so much more rewarding once you understand everything that's going on behind them. And De Palma, I, I think, as I said in the episode with Lee, that wasn't really my first filmmaker of choice at the time. But now, man, pretty easily one of the most fascinating American film directors of all time and just the most wide ranging, weird collection of films that he's made. So. He really is. And, and, and like, not to not turn this into, you know, fawning <laughs> over to Palma Day because we're here to talk about uh, Ed Wood. But, you know, I remember seeing the ads for Dress to Kill when I was a kid and there was a little bit of the forbidden fruit about it, sort of like the day after was on TV. They're just you weren't you weren't you know, you knew something was going on behind mm-hmm. the curtain there. You knew the leg in the poster, something bad was going to happen to that person. I really wanted to see it. I was not allowed to. So years late, my first introduction to De Palma was was the untouchables when I was a kid to go in and see that. And that was a great gateway drug for him. And then after that, I discovered everything. <laughs> I worked with a guy who was in casualties of war. Mm-hmm. When that movie came out, I went and saw that. I know you're not the hugest fan of that movie. Um, I, I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a De Palma apologist, but then went back <laughs> and saw Sisters and loved that. Um, I can just get into it. I can find something in his movies, no matter what they are, varying levels of quality that identifies that movie as a masterwork just for that sequence. Um, and that I can apply to my own stuff. So I love him. We don't have to talk about him anymore. No, Next that's time. true. I, I think I'm trying to, remember, I was just reading about the making of the untouchables. Maybe it was in Tarantino's book. Does he have, do, have you read cinema speculation yet? I, you know, I, I have not only read it, but the microphone I'm speaking to you on today is being propped up courtesy of <laughs> both cinema speculation and uh, Pauline Kale's for Keeps collection. Wow, okay, so, well, you yeah, got it all I covered there. Um, I, I, don't, I don't. I think I just read. I know there's a. I just read a fascinating one, which is what if Brian De Palma had directed Taxi Driver instead of Martin Scorsese, which is a great piece. Yes, I think that is in cinema speculation. Yeah, and I didn't know any of that backstory, which is that you know there's this really likely chance that De Palma could have chosen that instead of Obsession, which is one of those films that is not a great Brian De Palma movie, but has a sequence in it that you're talking about that is as masterful as anything that he's done. But um, Tarantino lays out in the book this trajectory where instead of Obsession, he could have made his Taxi Driver, which he makes a really compelling case, would have been a really fascinatingly different take on it than Scorsese's. And maybe would have more in common uh, with Blowout, which uh, I also recently did on the podcast, and then followed that up with Carrie, which would be insane. And his segue into Ed Wood is, you know, De Palma is a classicist at heart. He's a guy who understands and appreciates the history of Hollywood. Clearly, you know, Hitchcock is his shining North Star of filmmaking. But, you know, Hitchcock himself is rooted in the studio system and all of these things that are that are going on in the background and in the foreground of Ed Wood, which, as I said in the intro, if you'd asked me before sort of prepping for this episode, oh, what about Ed Wood? I said, oh, I love Ed Wood. And I, and I did. Uh, but diving into it, reading about it, uh, I, watching it several times, so many times, real appreciation for the filmmaking for Tim Burton, not a, not a director I gravitate towards, to be honest, yeah. in general. Um, but much like I think Jackie Brown for Tarantino, which I've said on the pod many times, something about sort of the, the, the style and the setting of Jackie Brown kind of, I thought boxed Tarantino in, in a way that proved to be really good for the film and for his filmmaking. Like he had to adapt. He, he had, had to, to adapt to yeah. one punch. He had a certain set of parameters and he made it a Tarantino version of, uh, you know, of that book. But you're right. He was boxed in a little bit and that really, you know, set him free in a certain way. And, and I think here the combination of 
making an homage and also a very stylistically pinpoint accurate version of a film from the 50s in what Tim Burton is doing with uh, Ed Wood. And in shooting it in black and white, um, I think Gosh, put, that's, put a, that's cinematography put a great, just... great set of guardrails on on this movie. And I thought really elevated Burton's filmmaking, or at least allowed me to enter into it and really appreciate him as a filmmaker, which isn't something I would necessarily have sort of signed up for before. So anyway, Ed Wood. It's interesting. I always gravitate to movies that are able to find that perfect alchemy or, 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 or sort of um, show that perfect alchemy of inspiration, perspiration and desperation that, that all goes into making art. Mm. And so few movies are able to do that. Well, I think Ed Wood is the one that does it perfectly. And I think the other one is one that, that, um, that, uh, that I loved, you know, that really got me into movies as a kid, which is fame, Mm. but Ed Wood, Ed Wood really shows that beautifully, especially with cinema. And there's so much about it that's, um, dead on the desperation. I mean, we can talk about it right from the beginning. I mean, right from the opening music and the opening uh, title sequence with the music kicking in Howard Shore's incredible score that both has the, the theremin that sort of makes Mm -hmm. you, you know, feel weird and science fictiony and, you know, has that fifties vibe, but also, you know, the, the, the congas that's, that sort of sound like you're stepping right into Ciro's or the Makanga, uh, the Macambo. Um, in L.A. circa 1950s. So you're right in there immediately. you have the miniatures and you have the um the stop motion that really makes it feel like okay you're gonna watch a tim burton movie sort of but also you know that fractured fairy tale um yeah it just pulls you right in immediately yeah well i think one of the early choices that burton had to make and i didn't read too much about why he made this choice but clearly it was the right one was that i think he'd made all of his previous films with danny elfman as the composer and this was the first film where he worked with someone else. And I think they had a falling out from what I understand. Oh, it did. Like there was a okay. bit of a falling out. Okay. And this was the first thing. Yeah. That, that they went their separate ways for a minute before well, they came back together shortly. Well, it, it sort of shows you the, the kismet maybe of, um, of even seemingly difficult moments in your life or career, because Howard Shore, I think proves to be the absolute perfect composer for a score that I find really moving. And the more I watch the movie, the more I really appreciate uh, how the the score, you know, when you have a when you have a contemporary film made in black and white, it strikes me as not the obvious choice to use some of the musical sort of cues and tones that Shore is using, which, as you said, are sort of both period, but then also have this kind of swelling romanticism and and scope and grandeur that's larger than sort of the the black and white cinematography would lend itself alone. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, it takes, it takes these figures that were, you know, that you're, you're trying to show these people that were on the fringe of something and makes them, gives them dignity and makes them mythic and, and shows their striving as something worthwhile. 
Um, and the score does all of that. And, and the, the incredible thing is even like I, watching this, I hadn't seen it in many, many years, but I'd seen it many times and watching it again, when Bella is first introduced every, Every time he walks into a scene, when he walks onto the stage for the first day of um, mm-hmm. filming Glenn or Glenda, you get that great Howard Howard Shore theme for Bella, which is like this deep, um, almost mournful mm. Hungarian dirge, um, you know, that that feels like you can, I mean, for lack of a better term, you can smell the goulash mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. but it, it also feels very dignified, you know? Um. Let's talk a little bit about the background of the movie, uh, which connects to another episode, which I didn't realize it connected to, uh, that we had done on the podcast, which is one of my favorite episodes, which is Heather's. And Mm. the screenplay is written by Scott Alexander, and I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right, Larry Karaszewski. Is that right? That's it. Okay. So Scott and Larry have made a little cottage industry or made a little cottage industry out of uh, kind of off-kilter. Misunderstood, uh, misunderstood. men or they they have their little misunderstood man trilogy yes you know going from i think it was because before ed wood they did the only things they had written were the problem child movies I, i'm sure knowing yes. if you know hollywood you know they've probably written a billion things you know right. that never got made before they got you know hit, hit hit the lottery with the problem child movies because those movies made a lot of money a lot of people liked them but ed wood was right after those and then they did the people versus larry flint mm-hmm. that was quite brilliant and sort of cast Larry Flint in, in, in a much different light as a crusader for democracy mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and, 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 and rights. Um, and then what was the one after that? It's there was the one Jim Carrey. Uh, it's the, oh, oh, it's Andy Jim Carrey's Man of the Moon, Andy right? Man of the Moon, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a little throwaway tribute to the problem of Problem Child, which if listeners aren't familiar, is a John Ritter vehicle, sort of a wacky adopted kid comedy of its era. And fascinatingly, uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, the film has the very rare approval rating of zero percent, which is incredibly hard to do. Um, I would wow. I would gather that Plan Nine from Outer Space probably has a much higher approval rating than zero percent. But there's a line right after the 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 hilariously staged play that Ed Wood has written and is directing, uh, where they're having drinks in the bar afterwards. And Ed, in his relentless optimism, is trying to cheer them up after reading the terrible review in the newspaper. And he mentions some kind of talking horse movie. I can't remember what it's not Mr. Ed, but it's Francis the Talking Mule. Francis the Talking Mule. And he's like, I mean, that got terrible reviews, but made a ton of money for everybody. I think that's their shout out. Around the block. Yeah, I (laughs) I love their shout out. I love Bill Murray in that scene. Screw you, Miss Crowley. That queen didn't even show. Yeah. She sent her copy boy. So problem, problem child became kind of this classic sort of albatross in a way around Scott and Larry's neck in the sense that they'd written this movie, which was critically reviled, but made a ton of money. I think it made like $76 million on a $10 million budget. So they were, they were popular, but um, they realized, you know, that wasn't what they really wanted to do when they were, college roommates and uh, starting out in in film school and having hopes and dreams and ambitions. And so I think the origin was that they said, um, and there's a really great uh, site called Money Into Light, if people want to look this up. It's a guy named Paul Rowland, so I believe is a a guy in the United Kingdom. He has a lot of interviews with some interesting filmmakers. He did a great two-part interview with Larry uh, Karaszewski about the making of Ed Wood. And in that, he says... uh, Larry says, you know, before the problem child experience, we probably would have written a campy, mean spirited Ed Wood film, the obvious approach. But now, after our critical lambasting, we looked at Ed in a different light, sympathetically. 
And I think that's such a key part to why this film works. I, I mentioned to you last night that I was so fascinated both reading. Sometimes I like to print out the screenplay, which is a kind of like getting the New York Times. Like I have to get the paper in real form still. I'm not, I can't just do something, certain things I can't do digitally. If it's a screenplay, I have to print it out and hold it and read it. I don't know why. And when I printed out their screenplay and was reading through it, you know, it's so fascinating to look at what is cut out and or inserted and and also to contemplate sort of how does the spirit of something get into a screenplay? Because that is the starting point of this otherwise director's medium. It's not a writer's medium in film. So, well, that's what I mean when I talk about sort of the alchemy that makes something come out a certain way, because I, I actually think this movie really does walk that fine line between ridicule, sympathy and empathy. Um, and at different times, you're not not entirely sure which one, you know, they're trying to play or which one they're trying to put forward. Um, but at the end of the day, what emerges out of all that is, is, is tremendous empathy. And it's interesting because it, it brings to mind that great uh, Roger Ebert quote, which I love, which is that um, I, 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 I wrote down somewhere because um, I was thinking about it as I watched it. Oh, he, he said, the, you know, the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. We all are born with a certain package, we are who we are. Where we were born, who we were born as, how we were raised. We're kind of stuck inside that person. And the purpose of civilization and growth is to be able to reach out and empathize a little bit with other people. Find out what makes them tick, what they feel about, what they care about. And for me, the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. If it's a great movie, it lets you understand a little bit more about what it's like to be a different gender, a different race, a different age, a different economic class, uh, a different nationality, different profession, different hopes, aspirations, dreams, and fears. It helps us to identify with the people who are sharing this journey with us. And that, to me, is the most noble thing that good movies can do, and it's a reason to encourage them and to support them and to go to them. And if that's true, then this movie really is sort of the Swiss watch of, of, of movies, you know, mm -hmm. of, of uh, empathy machines, because it really does make you feel that you're with everybody. You know, they they sometimes feel like they're playing caricatures, but somehow the humanity comes through even stronger. So, yeah, that, that was just it's a beautiful thing to see. And it makes me want to go out. You know, it also has that spirit of like the MGM let's put on a show musicals, you know, those, those, uh, Judy Garland, uh, Mickey Rooney musicals from the thirties, mm -hmm. you know, it's just that infectious showbiz let's go make something. And you're with them on that journey throughout the whole thing. So it can't entirely be ridicule. No, it's just, uh, there's and, so much more there. And in fact, I think, and I think any of us who spend any time in the entertainment industry, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I mean, what my feeling is, is that the, the people this movie is is fixating on are present in any in any creative art. There are the people who want so desperately to be in. They want to be a filmmaker, a singer, songwriter, an actor, a writer, whatever it is. But they lack something. And that could be talent. It could be, I don't know, the drive. Um, it's a very rarefied thing for it all to come together for someone. And it's not all entirely about pure talent either. All these other factors have to come into play. 
Well, what's interesting is I think there's something even more at work here because the movie the movie does work differently, and we'd be we'd be sort of remiss if we didn't discuss it in these terms. The movie works differently now than it did in '94 with everything that's going on today with trans rights and um, you know people feeling like they don't have to keep the secrets that they had mm. to get along in, in any sort of industry, that they can bring those into the life, that they can be fully themselves and still have the life they wanted. I actually don't think, if you look back now, and I have this, this is a very different perspective than I might've had in 94. I think Ed was wildly talented. I don't think he lacked for talent and I don't think he lacked for ambition. I mean, when you think about, um, when you think about Plan 9 from Outer Space, this idea in, in the 50s of aliens who are going to try and conquer the Earth, but they're sort of middle management, bored, you know, uh, they almost feel like the characters in Andor to me, you know, the sort of middle management Death Star guys who are just, they just keep the trains running, saying, we're going to conquer the Earth, um, but we're a little too lazy to do it ourselves. So let's see, what, what, what do we got here? Oh, Plan 9, yes, we can, we can use the dead. We can raise them to do our dirty work for us. It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this theater will not be born on Earth. They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the Earth. Plan 9 from Outer Space. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive vampire, and Thor Johnson as the Walking Dead. Turn off your electro gun! No! No! Stop it, Dennis! I can't get it, it's jammed! Stop it, you fool! Bullets bounce off their bodies. Rockets, missiles, jets cannot stop their death ship. What earthly power can stop this terror? For a glimpse of things to come, See this blast of screen suspense, for it could be happening right now. That's kind of brilliant, because by today's standards, that would be a mashup. You're taking an <laughs> alien movie and a zombie movie and mashing them together. Now, he didn't have the resources to make it like Sony might have, and I think Sony actually made a movie just like that like five years ago. Um, but I think Ed got in his own way too in probably a lot of ways and he was a tortured guy a lot a lot is made not in the movie but in the documentaries mm -hmm. and in the book the haunted world of, of edward d wood jr about his alcoholism his his you know substance abuse to cope um and all that stuff but i think when you carry around that heavy a secret your entire life um it gets in your way you know you're carrying around a darkness you're carrying around a pain you can't be your best self and you can't be your most creative self i think that was ed's biggest problem um you know we can also look at something like glenn or glenda which we can get to but mm -hmm. that's kind of a tremendous uh, ahead of its time personal statement and it's a beautiful uh you know, it's a it's a beautiful um, empathy machine as per Roger, Roger Ebert. It's trying to say, you know, God, God is God. I mean, he must not have he, he mm -hmm. can't have made this big a mistake. I know I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. I'm not a bad person. I just you know, these things just make me feel more comfortable. And today we go. So what? Yeah. And maybe in 94, you went, oh, that's weird. But in the 1950s, that was a really scary, damaging secret to carry along with you. 
One might say, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Why is the modern world shocked by this headline? Why? Once, not so very long ago, the people of the world were saying, Airplanes. <laughs> Why, it's against the Creator's will. If the Creator wanted us to fly, he'd have given us wings. But we fly. Maybe some of you may still remember an even sillier remark. Automobiles? Bah. They scare the hosses. If the Creator had meant for us to roll around the countryside, we'd have been born with wheels. Silly? Certainly. We were not born with wings. We were not born with wheels. But in the modern world of today, it's an accepted fact that we must have them. So we have corrected that which nature has not given us. Strangely enough, nature has given us all these things. We just had to learn how to put nature's elements together for our use, that's all. Yet, the world is shocked by a sex change. If the Creator had wanted us to fly, he'd have given us wings. If the Creator had meant us to roll around the countryside, we'd have been born with wheels. If the Creator had meant us to be boys, we certainly would have been born boys. If the Creator had meant us to be born girls, we certainly would have been born girls. Are we sure? And I think that hurt him. I mean, he's he's in, he's outsider art, right? Like he he got access to some of the materials to make films, uh, and and really on the scale of his ambition, pr- pr- primarily. When you look at the technical aspects of the filmmaking, and not all of these shortcomings can you chalk up to Ed Wood, although the film does make I think pointed use of the fact that he's not shooting multiple takes both out of uh, a naivete and also out of of a time and a budget constraint but when you do look at the filmmaking it is it is very rudimentary and amateurish all conversations are basically shot in two shot masters there's no there's no appreciation or fluidity for editing or how to do things in the camera but to your point i do think that he had a very specifically weird unique personal worldview which is almost pleading in glenn or glenda when you watch it now and so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna counterpoint on that a little bit jason and what i'll say is you know having worked in television for for you know 10 plus years now and knowing what it takes to make the day when Mm -hmm. you're talking about the amount of shots you want to get or a complicated Mm -hmm. uh sequence where you know you might have 20 shots um but you can only get five you know, Ed had five days to complete a picture. Sure. I don't think he had the ability to get the close-ups, to get the high angles, to get the low angles uh, that he might have gotten had he had the freedom to imagine the possibility of getting them. He was so focused on just getting the materials and getting them done. I'm gonna. I'm just going to advocate for Ed Wood. Okay, on this I hear podcast. you. Listen, I'm going to checkmate you a bit with uh, some of his distinctive writing here. Um, okay, let's, let's, let's listen to a little bit of this very, what I've come to appreciate is a very distinctive writing style for Ed Wood. Right. The grief of his wife's death became greater and greater agony. <laughs> this is the scene where Bella is leaving. This is the real Plan 9. With, the home sure. they had so long shared together became a tomb, a sweet memory of her joyous living. Okay, so right there, that is a very distinctive two-sentence Ed Wood thing. The home they had shared together had become a tomb. Uh, 
but then it's juxtaposed with like the joy the, the joy of her sweet memory it's just this odd juxtaposition oftentimes in his which is his florid over the top purple writing i am um, going to i am going to <laughs> capture your i'm going to i'm going to slip out of checkmate and capture your queen a second with with this other thing of 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 chris well coming out and saying uh we are all interested in the future yes. Because that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives in the future. That's kind of brilliant. Future <laughs> events like these will affect you in the future. Okay, that's wait, hold clever. On. I, I mean, I think he, little, I, that's there's some wit there. No, uh, there is. I've got a little of the Criswell. The actual. This is the actual Criswell opening. Okay, uh, what you're talking about. Which what's great with people do watch uh, moments of Plan Nine is how spot on a lot of the Tim Burton stuff is. Here comes Criswell. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. You're right. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. <laughs> okay, I mean, Brad, the writing, though. That's clever. That's not and, clever. And he had Come a voice, the future he had a perspective, he had a sense of humor that was his own. I mean, look, you can debate the quality of his films, <laughs> But you can't debate the fact that he was an artist, and the, and the film I think actually recognizes that. Okay, but can we can we have a standard for what's good writing? I mean, th- you and I will uh, meet in the future. But, in but, the future, but, like if you were just doing a rudimentary edit, you would cross out your second future, wouldn't you? Maybe, but your but but your standard. <laughs> I think your standard is it's uh, too a, modern. A a, nor- a normal narrative film, and the way I look at Ed Wood movies. Um, I sort of look at them in, in two ways. I look at them as the kind of grindhouse movies that I saw mm-hmm. as a kid that did not have the greatest writing, but entertained the hell sure. out of me as a kid and inspired me to become a filmmaker and an entertainer, um, which I think is its own kind of, you know, own, own kind of uh, worthwhileness. And um, I also think of Ed as sort of a precursor to Warhol in a way. Like he made these small, strange, handmade art films while desperately trying to to, to break into directing Hollywood films, which is what Warhol did too. You know, he he did what was available to him. Mm-hmm. And he also had his own menagerie kind of, of, of superstars, right? Like Andy had Joe D'Alessandro mm-hmm. and Candy Darling, Ed had Bunny and Criswell and Tor Johnson and himself. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the way they used, the way he used stock footage in that sort of elliptical way to, to to evoke subconscious feelings like the buffalo over Bella, like 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 imagery that Andy or Salvador Dali might have, or or even <laughs> Terrence Malick would pop to this, that, and the other. Wow. See, I'm going to get you. I'm going to sway you on this, Jason. <laughs> I don't think you're going to sway me. I mean, you can't really okay. compare Ed Wood to um, Salvador Dali. Okay, but like, like, <laughs> I, I take your meaning that the most interesting guest you've ever had. <laughs> let, let's 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 agree that it's it's worthy of watching because you will. You, you get clued in to this, the thing that you mentioned before about when he's doing Glenn or Glenda, how personal it is for Ed. When you yeah. know that, when you watch the, the excellent documentary about Ed's life that's on YouTube, you can find that if you Google that. And when you hear all these crazy chapters that they don't really get into in the movie, except to reference them that, you know, he was in World War II, he saw serious combat action. Um, but when you watch Glenn or Glenda, the writing, Ed's writing is so... Uh, it's so anxious to humanize him, yes, and 
I can't count the number of times he says in his own narration, you know, that he's not homosexual. Let's be clear here. You know, I'm not gay. I really enjoy uh, women. Like, it's defensive, too, in an understandable way. Sure. Uh, because, as you've said, in 1950s Hollywood, like, and also, let's be real. Okay, I've read plenty about the history of Hollywood. I'm reading a book, a great book right now about the 20s. Um, I mean, wearing women's clothing in private or even in public is by far the tamest thing going on in Hollywood in the 1950s. I mean, there is sure. there is depravity and debauchery on insane levels already going on at this time. Like Ed's secret is not this even even I think by then it, it in, in public. Yes, for the greater public in the rest of America. But by the standards of what was going on in Hollywood, and you can see this in the film, I think certain people are sort of horrified by, you know, Ed showing up in his Angora sweater. But other people really and some of the jaded, hilarious crew members on Ed's uh, studio shoots aren't, aren't really that phased, just like the makeup guy isn't really that phased in the brilliant scene where he turns over. Bella's arm while putting makeup on him and sees all the, track, the track marks. marks yeah, you know, which is such I, a I mean, I think thing. I think you're you're getting at that Hollywood in and of itself, and the people in Hollywood, and and I know this to be a fact, really don't care about any of that stuff. Yeah. You know, they are. It is very. It's very. It's a very liberal town. You know, but it's also a very you know liberal or conservative. It's a very liberal let live town. You know, it's a town full of artists, but it's also a town full of businessmen. And the thing that people, you know genuinely care about is that the world at large, like they know that the country and much of the world is not Hollywood and doesn't have uh, the tolerance um, that, that a lot of the people in Hollywood have for those sorts of things, you know, for, for social issues, for personal issues. So it's more about selling that product. And that's where the fear comes of letting other people know that side of people. So the, the screenplay that um, Scott and Larry wrote found its way to Michael Lehman, who is the brilliantly talented director of Heathers, which was his first film uh, from 1989. And Denise DeNovi had produced that film, had produced Heathers. And at the time that they wrote this screenplay, she was working with Tim Burton. And it's really to Michael Lehman's credit that he sort of stepped back from something that he was originally attached to direct himself, because he was smart enough to realize that uh, as he says in this interview that I was quoting from from Paul Rowland's Money in, Into Light uh, website, he says that Michael had the idea that if we could get a credit that read something like Tim Burton presents Ed Wood, it would make it easier to get the one or two million we thought we needed to make the movie. We got the treatment to Tim and he flipped out. He knew all about Ed's movies. He himself had had a long friendship with Vincent Price, whom he took care of in a similar way to how Ed had taken care of Bella Lugosi. He really identified with the material, wanted to direct it himself. Michael told him that if he agreed to make it as his next film, he would step aside and be one of the producers. And that's what happened. Um, and I guess Burton was flirting with um, Mary Riley, directing Mary Riley. I don't know who ended up directing Mary Riley. But, Ooh, dodged that bullet. Uh, he dodged that bullet. And then this became... Uh, Tim Burton's next film. And then I think famously, um, I'm not sure it was, Col I think it was Columbia who originally had the production and they put the picture in turnaround because Tim Burton insisted on filming it in black and white. And they tried that compromise, which again, I think so many of the things that Ed and his crew go through, there's no difference really between them and people who have quote unquote made it. Right. Like they're, they're still 
everyone breathes the same air. Everyone has the same problems, just to different degrees of severity. That's right. And so to me, I look at this lovable band of misfits as not at all like wannabes who don't have the talent to make it. I mean, they're the same as the people who made it. Okay, there's no difference there. And the people who look down on people like Ed and his cohort forgot that they forgot that they came from the same uh, you know, genetic cesspool that that spawns people who have a desire to enter the entertainment industry. Or they look down on them because they remembered it That's and don't true. want to be reminded of where they came from, which is why a lot of people run out to Hollywood. <laughs> That's true. And so what the studio did with Burton, which I think is this is this is the kind of stuff that I love. They countered his his uh, suggestion or it wasn't really suggestion, but they countered his notion of shooting in black and white by saying, OK, like we might be into that, but let's just have you shoot it in color just in case. And then, you know, you can treat the film and make it black and white. And he knew that if he agreed to that, it would never come out in black and white. You know, it's akin to many directors will, uh, what's his name? Who directed, uh, all the, the great Eastwood movies. Um, Siegel. Sergio Leone. No, um, Don Siegel. Oh, Don Siegel. Know, famously yeah. would shoot just what was needed to assemble the film only the way he had it in his mind so that the studio could never kind of recut it. And yeah, and this was the same thing. So it caused so, you know, Burton refused to do that because he knew that that was just sort of one of those things that a, a studio would tell you in order to get what they want and make you think that you have a chance to get what you want, but then ultimately screw you over. So, yeah, there's there's a there's a there's a famous thing that, uh, you know, secret of the trade, you know, oftentimes actors will not want to say a certain line or right. do a certain thing. We'll They'll do, do everything we'll do differently. Your way too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you say, you know what? You, I love it. Can you, can you just give me one yeah. <laughs> the way I asked for it? And they go, sometimes they go sure, but oftentimes they go, no, no, I won't. And you say, well, why? And they go, because that's the one you'll use. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so uh, he, he, he stuck to his guns. They put the picture in turnaround and because Burton had this newfound relationship with Disney, that's who ended up uh, putting the film into production. And Ed Wood and Disney, a match made in mean, It's amazing, right? And, and I think one of the great <laughs> things about the film, and it's particularly the end of the film, which I want to ask you about when we get there, but, you know, he is giving Ed Wood and he's giving these people a moment that maybe they never really had. Well, we know they didn't have it in their in their life, right? They didn't have a nuanced appreciation of what they were doing and what they were trying to do. Um and he's he's providing that, you know, and he's he's doing a service to Ed that he never that Ed never got in his in his own sadly sort of tragic life, which you know it's fascinating when you read about him and you watch a documentary. I mean, I would love to see like a De Palma movie about the 70s, the 1970s version of Ed Wood, where he's making sort of like pseudo softcore porn movies and writing porn novels to survive and his alcoholism is, I mean, there's a, there's a brutal and kind of depressing version of this. Can I, can I, can I speak to that real quick? Can I speak to the, um, to the happy ending uh, that, that Ed himself was not able to see? Yes. So when I first went out to LA in, um, in 96, you know, the movie had come out, Ed would come out a couple of years earlier and I was absolutely obsessed with it. And um, then the documentary came out like a year later, the haunted world of Edward mm-hmm. D Wood Jr. Or came out in 96. I can't remember, but I know it was playing in uh, a, a beautiful old movie palace. Um, that's still in LA. It's, 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 it's not quite what it was, but it's called the new art. Yes. And, um, I went down to see it very young me. Uh, I think I was 21 at the time. And, um, Paul DeMarco, not Paul DeMarco, Paul Marco, Paul Marco who yeah. played Kelton, the cop was there. 
Of and course he was, was. there <laughs> soliciting people for the Paul Marco fan club <laughs> and just talking to people who liked Ed right. and who was were interested in his life and me being one of them. And I and I I hung out by the popcorn stand and and talked to Paul Marco for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I asked him about that very thing. I said, you know, what do you think Ed would have thought about the ending of the Burton movie, about, you know, how he was portrayed? And Marco said, I think he would have loved it. But I think because Ed was such a uh, a a guy who who was devoted to his friends, he would love it even more, knowing he's looking down on us, that we got to see it too, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that people are still alive, that I'm here, that, um, you know, uh, was it Mela, uh, Nermi or something yeah. like that vampire, yeah. that she's here, that she sees it, that, that, um, I think Dolores was alive, you know, that people he knew and he had in his orbit bunny are able to see that he got his due in mm-hmm. some form. So that was cool. Yeah, that was cool. And I think if people do dig into the, to the real story of Ed Wood, you know, you'll, you'll have this, I think this moment that of course, is kind of the point of Edward in a sense, which is that, you know, even even me, I'm sort of like, oh, I'm surprised that like Bunny is ba- is a real person that Bill Murray is playing. That these are all real people. These are all based on real actual people. George Weiss, the producer, yeah. um, these are all actual people. So this is all factually based. And in fact, much of the filmmaking is this kind of meta making of a making of, where Tim Burton and everyone, uh, Stefan Zapsky, the the brilliant cinematographer are recreating Ed's setups almost frame for frame. And the actors are doing the dialogue in the sort of stilted, bad acting manner that the original uh, uh, protagonists are doing. And so you have this fascinating kind of mashup of uh, the movie within the movie, the meta narrative that's going on. And then you have the other element, which is what I wanted to ask you. Those recreations, by the way, are just brilliant. Brilliant. Perfect. You can and, find on YouTube, there's yeah. plenty of side-by-sides of scenes from the movie, which are intercut with the actual scenes they're based on. And it'll blow your mind how how spot on uh, Burton's were. And it doesn't feel like they're making fun of those movies either when no. they do those recreations. They're playing them straight when Bella does his speech about atomic Superman. Yes. It, it's, it's, it's over the top in the way Bella did it in the movie, but it's not more over the top. It's not more exaggerated. They're very loving characterizations and recreations, I think. They are. And and Johnny Depp's performance is so key and it's pitched so interestingly to me because you have Martin Landau giving this very real, uh, realistic, naturalistic performance. You know, it's not a sort of. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it, there's such a human being at, at the heart of Bella as portrayed Absolutely. by Martin Landau. Yeah, and he is maybe because Bella himself was so over the top, he's playing him accurately. So you get this sense of a very large presence, you know. Um, but yes, he, he was playing him accurately, definitely. But you know, Depp is pitched sort of right on that line, or maybe over the line of, of a caricature. Like if you if you listen to Edward talk or see some of the very sort of few video uh, examples of him that where he's not acting, but he's maybe talking about himself or his career. You know, he doesn't sound like Johnny Depp does in the film. And that's a choice. And I think it's a it's a choice that works, but it's bizarre that it works because around him, you have kind of not one tone of performance. So in other words, you know, a lot of times in a film, you can have a director who kind of wants like Mamet, for example, you know, he's going to direct the actors to sort of have cadence and intonation that's very specific to his dialogue. And they all kind of are going to end up having that 
commonality. And while there can be great and brilliant performances in Mamet directed films, there's going to be that universality of intonation in a way. In this movie, you have actors doing different things. And then you have kind of Johnny Depp somehow managing through his sheer talent. I think at the time you have this kind of peak Depp moment. Yeah, well, the ringmaster always has to be pitched a little higher to bring so. you through the uh, the strange uh, so. world of the circus, right? So I think it feels like he's doing that a little bit. Somehow it works though, and it's in it's of a piece with his other characterizations of the time. He's got, you know, mm-hmm. I think around this he did, obviously Scissorhands was a few years earlier where he's like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the doe-eyed naif, you know, with, with who's also dangerous, uh, but sweet and innocent. I think right before this, he was playing Benny in June. He was in Benny in June where he's playing like, you know, this, this nouveau chaplain-esque sort of character. I think right after this, he did Don Juan DeMarco. So he's playing these sort of, slightly larger than life characters, but it really works here, I think, because he pulls you through. The innocence comes through too. Yeah, the innocence comes through and the it's a very subtle performance. It's easy in a way to watch the movie and kind of miss, I think, some of the subtler currents that are going on in Depp's performance, but they're there upon repeated viewing for me, or at least I'm just yeah, maybe not sure. smart enough to get them the first time through. But when you get past that surface of kind of the, hey guys, let's put on a show, Underneath that, there's so many telling and great moments, like when when he's in the office of Weiss, who's freaking out because he's realized that Ed is making this uh, completely different movie than I Changed My Sex, which was his original, uh, which was George Weiss's original idea. And he's yelling at Ed and he says, you know, he calls the character in Ed's script, which he doesn't yet fully know is based completely on Ed and Dolores's life. He says something like, you know, he's an Angora sweater wearing schmuck. And Depp has this great little moment where he's like, well, I don't think he's a schmuck because he's talking about himself. Right. Yeah. And there's all these other little moments throughout where his guard slips a little. And there's scenes where you understand the exhaustion of the optimism required to get to where you're trying to get to in the entertainment business. And he yeah, has he's to not be just guy. putting on a show no. physically. He's putting on the show of being Ed Wood to get what he wants or even just putting on a show so that, you know, as a front, because he doesn't want people to see who he really is. Right. And Depp is playing all that kind of stuff. He is playing all that is there. All the all the sort of the alcoholism is there when you look for it. Um, the uh, the backstory, you know, his sort of tortured personal history, um, all of this stuff is there and is playing in this performance, which is so interestingly pitched kind of in this theatrical place that. Well, uh, I think they were smart enough to know tonally that if you played Ed Wood as he really was and what he really went through and how he really felt about the secrets hmm. and what his mom did, his background and, you know, trying to to accomplish this dream and the alcoholism, it would play too dark. You'd lose an audience hmm. to tell this story and to get it across and to really create that empathy. You need to play it a little bit uh, slightly heightened, hmm. you know, and then you true. get the effect you need. Um, let's talk a little bit about Martin Landau as as Bella Lugosi. One of the great anecdotes that I came across was that the real the reason they all seized upon black and white for the film uh, was because of Martin Landau. And it was because they were uh, doing camera tests for Landau's makeup. And Rick Baker's like I, I texted a friend of mine who's uh, in the special effects business. And I said, you know, hot take Rick Baker's makeup on Martin Landau is like some of his most impressive work. Of course, Rick Baker has done incredible things of the more kind of ostentatious monster variety that you would expect. 
But this makeup job they did on Martin Landau was so fantastic and so incredible. But what happened was, uh, as uh, Larry says in that interview, he says, quote, we were doing camera tests for Rick Baker's makeup on Martin. And no matter how much makeup we put on him, he looked hardy. He looked hale. He looked well-fed. We were looking for which angle Landau looked most like Lugosi. And of course, the monitor was in color. We had never even seen a color picture of Lugosi. At one point, the cinematographer, Stefan Zapsky, walked up and simply switched the monitor to black and white. And it was like, bingo, everything just clicked. So, uh, you know, on a monitor, you can you can toggle between different settings. And he just switched the monitor, what it would look like in black and white. And all of a sudden, everyone understood, oh, this is what we have to do here. But it wasn't originally part of the plan. Well, you can get so much more depth and contrast in the blacks and whites, oh, yeah. you know, in black and white, that, you know, if you're looking for... Uh, to, to turn someone who looks hale and hearty ill and right. you want to do it, you know, realistically, that certainly helps. And I wanted to shout out um, Tom Duffield, the production designer. I mean, among, oh my the, among the many craftspeople doing just superlative, brilliant work, you know, Incredible watch, work. watch this scene again when um, Patricia Arquette and Johnny Depp's characters go into the spook house. And all of the all of the things that are in this made up attraction and this carnival attraction, you know, are all part of uh, Tom Duffield brilliantly bringing sort of the Tim Burton world to life through these kind of strangely uh, Dolly-esque skulls or um, other kinds of, you know, iconography of, of 50s sort of monster fear stuff that's so brilliantly rendered. Yeah, all of that, all of that Tim Burton's, you know, the stuff that Tim Burton does so well and loves, he brought to life beautifully. But then also, you know, something as uh, seemingly simple as a your show of shows type stage, yeah. you know, where yes. they do the the slick Slamopovich oh, show. It's just, you know, um, the 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 Brown Derby, you know, mm. all of the, the the carpet in those places, yes. everything was just right on point. That that scene at the variety show is so brilliant, um, and and such a great example of when the um, screenplay and Burton and the actors allow a scene to not be overstuffed with information. So for example, when, when uh, it's so brilliantly constructed because Edward and Bella are backstage at this live television variety show of its type. And they're what's brilliant about the scene as written is it's they're running through the dialogue. So it tells you the, the viewer kind of a little bit of what you're going to see before you know it. And what, why that's important is when they actually do the scene, I don't know who the, who's the guy based on. Is it like Sid Caesar that it's supposed to be? Yeah, it's like a Sid Caesar, your yeah. show of shows type thing. And he throws Bella because in, instead of the dialogue that they that they sort of quickly rehearsed in the moments before going live, uh, the, the the Sid Caesar Red Skeleton character ad libs, and Bella is completely thrown and doesn't know what to do. And then when he comes off stage and he just shrugs to Ed Wood, it's so heartbreaking. It's so it's very heartbreaking. Uh, and another like wonderful, subtle moment in that scene of, of just really great screenwriting um, is when they're, they are running lines before they do the actual show. And Bella, because of his thick accent, can't <laughs> pronounce some of the words in them. And Ed just says, you know what? Don't worry. Just say yeah. blank. And he, he chooses a simpler word for Bella that he can yes. do. That's not only like a sweet bonding scene between them and a helpful, mm. wonderful scene, but it's also showing Ed as 
potentially great director, which is what mm-hmm. they do. They say, you know what? You can't do this. You don't want to say this. Mm-hmm. Put it in your own words. Make it easier. Make it flow out of your mouth easier. And that's what Ed is doing there. Yeah. I think it's a great sort of subtle way of showing this guy could have been good at his job. Here's a little of Martin Landau talking about portraying Bella Lugosi. My gosh, Bella. How do you do that? This is a great scene, too. You must be double-jointed. And you must be young, Gideon. One of the things I said to Tim right off the bat, I said, you know, you've got here is a 74-year-old Hungarian morphine addict, alcoholic, who has mood swings. That would be hard enough. But he has to be Bela Lugosi, who everyone knows. I said, you know, this could be the worst thing that ever happened. There are a lot of elements in Lugosi's career and as a man and what he stood for, what he cared about, uh, his, his successes, his disappointments. There were a lot of things I understood in, intuitively and innately. So there is a lot of me. Uh, I, I don't know whether everything I am is in Lugosi, but uh, I, I was able to do a lot of things. I also uh, saw a lot of humor. Because it's a Tim Burton movie, there's a, a certain kind of style that's needed. I mean, it can't be exactly uh, a kitchen sink kind of approach to a character. It is a comedy. It is somewhat extended. And, and there's a... Uh, a life of a, of a certain kind. I, I think that's such a great quote because it goes back to what I was saying before about, you know, Martin Landau is saying that about the Bella Lugosi that he's portraying at that point in Bella's life. That's the connection, connective tissue to me. Here's someone who's made it in the industry, right? Who's going to win an Academy Award, the highest thing you can do. And, and he understands the Bella of this era of Bella which is the crushing disappointment, the incredible um, uselessness that he feels because he gave everything to this thing, which isn't going to love you back. Uh, it's not going to take care of you. It's uh, it's fleeting. And when you're forgotten, because it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. That's, it's the, that's the secret. They don't tell you. <laughs> yeah. Hollywood doesn't exist. Exactly. It's a loose collection of people <laughs> and, you know, and and places, none of which you know, all of which are looking at each other askance and mm-hmm. clawing to get ahead faster. And it, it has no feelings. And, and you know, it, it really is about finding the reason, uh, that, the real reason why you're doing it that comes from that primal place of, of, of love and need and not getting wrapped up in uh, every everyone else's opinion of you and the town's opinion of you. And unfortunately, that's oftentimes a byproduct of, of, of struggle and growing old in the business and, mm-hmm. and finding yourself um, cast out, as many people do. There's a great little um, thing in the screenplay. I wanted to read this. This is uh, just their, their, their succinct three-line description of Bella Lugosi before we meet him in the screenplay. It says, Lugosi slowly sits up inside the coffin. Bella is an aged 70-year-old man, once a great star, now a faded memory trying to hang on to his nobility. Quite frail and tired, he is still a master of the grand gesture. That's great screenwriting right there. That's not something you're going to, you know, you're not going to hear those words spoken in the movie. Uh, but clearly that goes into... But it's a wonderful piece of writing. And, and, and what it allows is, it allows the actor 
to figure something out. It allows the cinematographer to figure out how to light him. It allows the director to figure out how to block the scene, block the camera, that you're trying to evoke the feeling that that the screenwriters are writing in, you know, in the script. Mm-hmm. All of that description of what the audience should feel, of who these people are, that allows the, the, the people to do their work, yeah. all the departments. And I just, I think every time I watch this movie, um, I find something new and, and incredibly uh, heartbreaking in land and funny in Landau's performance. I mean, it's such, he really disappears, not just into the makeup here, but the accent and um, the, the all consuming nature. It's such a great part. And it's, it's, yeah, it, it was such a great performance that he had to put his daughter in the movie to, to absorb some of it. They had to put another Landau in it so she could soak up some of it, the greatness coming off her father. Oh my God, he's so good. It's a terrific performance and it's it's uh, it deservedly won the Oscar for him. And he put in another dynamite performance about four years earlier, which I had forgotten about until I went and looked, but I've seen this movie a million times, in Crimes and Misdemeanors. And oh, oftentimes yeah. you forget how brilliant Martin Landau is because this performance overshadows almost everything he's ever done. But that is such a naturalistic performance too, uh, of Judah, you know, in that movie that it's, um, he's just terrific. He's terrific. This, another thing it reminded me of is, you know, one of my, uh, most recent favorite films is once upon a time in Hollywood, because it's also about many of these things that Ed Wood is about in its own way, right? It's about that there are eras in the film business and you can be a big star in one era and this other era doesn't come crashing down overnight, but it kind of sneaks up on you and you realize only a little bit too late as the Leo uh, DiCaprio character does that you're out of place and out of time. There's a lot of that in the Bella uh, portrayal here. And I also think that the great scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where after being portrayed as kind of the hack that he really is uh, in these cowboy movies, he's on the set of the TV show where he's playing the bad guy and all of the brilliant way that that's explained to him through the Pacino character early on, you know, that he's the former star that gets beat up by the new star, the new generation of star. And that great scene that he has with the young actress who is such a professional at such a young age and he's he's falling apart and he's crying and then he brings it. What'd they call that outfit? Bengal Lancers. <laughs> no, 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 that is funny. That is funny. That's not so funny. Don't you get it? Bengal Lancer. Hmm? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is kind of funny. It is. <laughs> you do know kidnapping is a hanging <laughs> So blowing the heads off little girls. <laughs> they can only hang me once, right? So, you come down here for a, for a Boston social, or we gonna talk price? How much? I'd say... $50,000 and buy me a whole lot of chicken mole in Mexico. It's a lot of money. Well, she's a lot of little girl. Or don't you agree? I agree. So what's next? Well, I'll send one of my boys out to your ranch to fill you in on all the details. But uh, one detail I'm going to fill you in on right now is this. I don't want no... Beaner Bronco Buster handed me that $50,000. I want the old man himself. 
Murdoch Lanson puts $50,000 in my lap or I'll eat this little picture down a well. You got that, Boston? Huh? Yeah. All right, messenger boy. Deliver my message. And cut! Oh, boy. I didn't, I didn't hurt you there, Mary, but with that throw, did I? No, 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 no. I'm good. I got pads on. <laughs> and I always throw myself on the floor, just for fun, even when I'm not getting paid. <laughs> Rick. 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 Put her there. Oh, that was it. Really? That was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. Hey, and your idea about throwing the little girl on the ground, that just worked like a charm. Yeah, I figured you, you said Shakespeare. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. That was, and that's what I mean by scare me. Yeah. yeah. Evil Hamlet scares yeah. people. All right. Oh, and by the way, <clears throat> Beaner Bronco Buster? Yeah. Where the hell did that come from? Improv. <laughs> it was wonderful. It was just, that was a triple alliterative improv. Don't hear those too often. Okay, all right. we're all good. Don't need to go again. No, we're done. That was fantastic. All right. Okay, moving on. We're in the bordello. Next setup. That was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. Thank you. And it's such a powerful and incredible scene because it's real. Like the quality of the acting is so real and so good. It has to be. And you're seeing, you know, you're seeing Leo's realization also that maybe just maybe I got the more interesting part here now. And that, you know, my future of potentially playing heavies might be a lot brighter than these dull leading men I used to play. I got that sense too in that. And the scene at the sort of towards the end of Ed Wood where Bella and Ed are walking outside uh, to me is a very similar moment. I want to play a little bit of that here. This is such a great, great scene. So touching between these two. Eddie, last night was quite a wrong. Did you see that kid grab vampires' boobies? <laughs> I envied him. Hell, I envied you too. A girlfriend who would jump in front of a car like that. Yes, she is quite something. None of my wives would have. <laughs> Eddie, I want to thank you. These last few days have been a good time. You know, I just, I just wish you could have seen the movie. Uh, no problem. I know it by heart. Home. I have no home. Haunted. Despised. Living like an animal. The jungle is my home. But I shall show the world that I can be its master. I shall perfect my own race of people. 
It's just such a great scene. It is. It's, it's a great scene. And there's so many different things going on yes. in this scene too, that you, that you don't realize because there's in many ways they're overshadowed by the brilliance of the performance and the writing. But like, I recall just having watched that, um, you know, the other day that a, when he's doing that scene outside, he's framed in a low angle yes. shot. So there's something of, it puts the audience in the perspective of being in a theater mm -hmm. and looking up at the screen yes. and seeing the image as mythic. So that's one. Two, what you're seeing behind him, he's framed, and this is props to the production design, by the most beautiful 1950s like uh, a stone masonry, stonework, you know, th this mm -hmm. really elaborate, these really elaborate carvings that just frame him as as mythic. I mean, that's the word I keep coming back to. So all of those subtle things, I encourage you know people yeah. to, to 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 really look out for. And it restores the dignity to the actor, to the character of Bella. It's it's his moment. It gives him this moment that he is big enough for. And the way that Landau is bellowingly in control of this scene and the formidable power. And then he has a he has a final uh, audience of passersby who I think in a great little tip to what would come for Ed Wood for Bella Lugosi down the road, this idea that, you know, if you wait, if you wait it out, these vagaries of Hollywood eras, uh, eventually you'll get some of your due. And I think that's what that scene for me also is, is that. You know, he has been so unappreciated for the entirety of the film, but just like they're going to give that moment to Ed and everyone at the end that they didn't get in real life. I think he's giving that to Bella, too. It reminds me of another film that I talked to uh, Joseph Schneider about. I know Joseph. You know Joseph. That's very, a, very well. He's another member of the full cast and crew Mutual Appreciation Society. He's and brilliant. He uh, is uh, just a multi-talented guy. Great crime writer. I encourage people to check out his books. Um, but a hell of a dancer. A hell of a ballroom <laughs> That's right. Dancer. Hell of a ballroom dancer. And a magician. Um, yeah. He uh, hipped me to Targets, which has a lot in common with some Ed Wood stuff and with, um, with Ed Wood's filmmaking style, because Targets was Bogdanovich's first film. And he was working... And all stock and mostly stock footage. Well, he had to use this this film that had uh, Karloff and a young Jack Nicholson uh, in it, right. which was sort of one of these castle epic kind of films that, that Ed Wood is talking to Bella about when they first meet. About, By the way, know, how dare you mention Karloff on this podcast? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Karloff is not worthy to smell my shit. I mean, that's just one of the great lines in this movie. Um, but Karloff is so brilliant in that. And he's playing a version of this. It's very similar to, to much of what goes on in Ed Wood. If you haven't seen Targets, yeah. I, I encourage people to check it out. Because he, too, is playing a past his sell-by date uh, film star who is a little bit more prescient, maybe, than, than Bella is portrayed in Ed Wood. Mm -hmm. um, but it has a lot of the same stuff going on. And it has a lot of the same kind of meta film within a film. Uh, things that are happening. It's a brilliant, brilliant film, and I'm, I'm grateful for Joseph bringing it to my attention. Um, but, yeah, that's true. But, but it has some, some similarities here to what we're talking about. I also wanted to comment on something else the film does, which uh, is that Bella has a line um, 
first of all, when Bella hits his bottom uh, in this scene, which I want to play a little of, this is just such a powerfully done scene where he answers the door with a gun. You called me, remember? What are you doing, Bella? I'm going to kill myself. This scene is filmed with just these brilliant canted angles and stark light sources, and it's just very stylistically different than a lot of what came I think before. it's handheld, too. I, I think it's um, because most of the film is very, uh, you know, the compositions are, mm-hmm. are, very, um, are very classical. And I think in this scene, to get the sort of um, fear of the scene, yes. I think he went handheld, if I recall. And then... Show the agitation. Landau has to do so many things in this one scene. He has to be kind of funny, but also it has to end in this desperate, just broken, sobbing bottom, which is... Don't you have any savings? Heavy. I'm obsolete. I have nothing to live for. Tonight I should die. And, you know, this also reminds me of this, the last scene in The Fablemans where the Spielberg doppelganger meets uh, hilariously cantankerous John Ford as portrayed by David Lynch. And he says, why do you want to be in this business? It'll chew you up and break your heart. I mean, there's so much of, of, of the awareness that this is part of what the business does to people. Yeah, I mean, you know... You, you you go into the arts because you have no other choice emotionally because, <laughs> you know, whether you're successful or not, at some point along the way, sometimes many, many times in, in a very successful person's career, it chews you up and, and mm-hmm. eats you alive and tears your heart out. Yes. But you do it anyway, you know, and because because as Woody Allen says, you need the eggs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's such a good idea. And when he, he's it's threatening wonderful. Ed with the gun here. It'll be wonderful. We'll be at peace in the end. And this is such a, the, the, the way they, the, the, they're spinning around the camera and. I'm on your side. It's funny, but it's filled with pathos. If you give me the gun, I'll make you a drink. And even this part where he's now crying. Straight up around the rocks. Incredible. I mean, you know, they're incredible. And aside from aside from the performances, the individual performances themselves, which are masterful, what you can't account for and what you get in this movie in spades and in so many different directions is chemistry. Mm -hmm. The chemistry between Johnny Depp and Martin Landau is 
you know, something that you, you know, that you have to get lucky. That's alchemy, you know, it really, really is. Well, I think Larry, I think he mentions in that, I don't know if I read that paragraph, but he said, you know, it's really a love story between these two guys. That That's the love story at the center of the movie that has to work. And it does. Yeah. So that, so that brings me to a question I, I have for you, uh, you know, that this is a, you know, a, a, a fictional version of their lives and that they've decided to frame it as a love story, um, as Larry Karaszewski sa- says, between these two men. So there's something really interesting in the documentary, The Haunted World of Edward D. Wood, Wood Jr., where Bella Lugosi Jr., and I, and I know you remember this, yes. says, I, you know, yeah. I hated Ed. He's the only one who says it in yes. there. I hated Ed because I think he was a user and a huckster, and I think he took advantage of my father at a ve- very mm-hmm. vulnerable time in his life. So now you have this this narrative feature that that frames their relationship and that frames Ed as, yes, to some degree, a lovable huckster, but also altruistic in a way. And, you know, taking this man who was in poverty and past his sell-by and in obscurity and giving him back to some degree an aspect of his dignity. Um, so, you know, was the movie, what do you think, first of all, that, you know, was Edward just exploit and i have a perspective on this but was edward just exploiting bella lugosi was it a a mutual um you know were they mutually beneficial in what they were getting from each other or was it in its way a love story well i think that everything that we know about ed wood from the various sources uh, a couple documentaries the book this fictional version of his life i would say that ed wood's first and foremost motivation was the career of Ed Wood. And I think when he encountered Bella Lugosi, he both had the appreciation that is shown in the film for the stars of his childhood. I think that's a real appreciation. I think he really did enjoy those movies. It's akin to Tarantino liking the 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 grindcore movies that you mentioned, right? Like in, in yeah. Cinema Speculation, he talks about like for him going to the movies wasn't going to see, you know, Academy Award winning stuff. It was going to see genre exploitation pictures at the sorts of cinemas that he and his, his family could afford to go to. I think yeah. so that part of it is real for Ed, but it's inescapable that Bela Lugosi was an addict and was completely at loose ends and was available, but made himself available to be, I wouldn't even use the term exploited by Ed Wood because Bella was happy to be doing this work, even if he probably right. felt it was beneath him. So I don't think Ed Wood is some sort of like evil mastermind who is deluding Bella into thinking something is going on that isn't going on. I think Bella was a drug addict and a uh, a person who was broke, who, who, you know, for however many years he had as Edward, it's all in the screenplay. As as Johnny Depp's character says to the guy running the little uh, studio based, you know, plant business where where the Edward character is working on, you know how much money he made for this studio with these three or four movies. And the guy says, "Ah, he's a junkie. If you think he's so great, you hire him." And Ed says, "Well, I would if I could." So yeah. I think that the sons, you know, who's who's Belagosi Junior, um, I believe, still is. Uh, he's a very successful lawyer. And obviously very protective of his father's experience. But it is kind of jarring in that documentary that he's the only person who has this very strong take on the relationship. I would say he comes across as someone um, too intelligent for that to be completely fabricated. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it doesn't feel to me in what 
you know, I, I look at everyone's part in it. I would say if I was Bella, I'd say, well, what's my part in this? You know, well, my part in it is, is I'm uh, addicted to morphine and uh, squandered my marriages and my fortune. And um, I have no, and I need money and I, somebody I do who, who, who treats me like, you know, what I consider my worth and my value value to some degree now. I mean, I think, I think, I don't think Ed's thing was entirely mercenary. I think there was, there had to have been love there because even after he was told over and over again in the movie, as well as in life, that Bella's washed up and Bella's, you know, by distributors, there's, there's no way I can sell this. Bella doesn't mean anything, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of distribution, Ed still used him consistently over and over and over again. So I think that that connection to his childhood and why he fell in love with movies in the first place was a stronger motivating factor. Ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not at first, yeah. but I think ultimately. So I think I think the love story angle in the movie um, is valid. That's that's my whole thing. Here's a here's a amazing clip I found. Um, so one of the things that the movie sort of posits, although in reading the book that I'm reading right now, which is about um, Buster Keaton in the 20s, um, it seems like there were some sort of movie stars who publicly dried out or they didn't, they didn't really call them going to rehabs at the time. But there's a thing made in Ed Wood where he says uh, where Bella is reveling in the tabloid press attention that checking himself into the L.A. sanitarium for his morphine addiction has garnered. And Ed is shown, to your point, he's protectively getting rid of these these scavengers who he says are just trying to exploit you. And Bella pointedly says, Eddie, let them, you know, one of them mentioned the cover, like it's going to be good for my comeback. So it shows you that Bella is deluded in his own way. He's, he's someone who's in a sanitarium because he's a morphine addict and he's still thinking about the future as opposed to getting better. So I think all of this is contained in the screenplay. If you're, if you're looking this, this incredible clip I found here is Bella. This is him talking the day he left this sanitarium as depicted in the film. He's giving an interview to a reporter. They weren't as strict. So I was, I was afraid it's going to take too long. But now you made a short cut. It was very. How long have you been in the institution, Mr. Pizzuri? Three months. Three months. Because 90 days is the state law. It's minimum. What did you weigh when you came in, about, or how much underweight were you when you entered the? Oh, I was 45 pounds underweight. 45. Yes. Have you put most of that back? Oh yes, I regained 21 pounds. Mm-hmm. And you feel like you're old. You feel, I feel like a million dollars. You feel like practically really felt huh? Sure. That is best. I'm looking forward to work again. I understand that. I had an assignment uh, playing the star part in uh, The Boo Goes West. Uh-huh. Yes. And uh, Eddie Woods Eddie will Woods. be the producer. And you're going to handle that as soon as you leave. Surely. So that to me is very telling to what you were talking about. Yeah. It's kind of akin to, you know, um, is. Is Bella cured from his morphine addiction after 30 days in the sanitarium? And is he ready to go back to work? Clearly, you know, Eddie is ready to put him to work and he's excited to go to work. So, I mean, I think this relationship has to be understood in the context of uh, both Hollywood and addiction and and, you know, fame is an addiction and and uh, attention is an addiction. And I think although and ego is an addiction, ego is an addiction. You know. and then this is all in the, the stew here that I think is getting cooked up and nobody who achieves the kind of glory and, and renown that Bella Lugosi had, you know, you don't want that to go away. You don't ever want that to go away. So if somebody is dangling something in front of you, um, yeah, that's even just the promise 
of, of, uh, of having a little bit of that again, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to say no. So you can't say Bella was entirely taken advantage of, you know, no. and if anything, he probably wanted to be. Probably. Um, he's a willing, he's complicit. He's, he's a willing participant in his own diminishment as we all are in the entertainment business from time to time. Yeah. Um, some other just great casting notes I wanted to ask you about oh, Bill Murray. I, I want to play this scene for, I, I, I sort of, you know, I'm not a huge Bill Murray fan for a lot of reasons. Um, but I really appreciated how he was used and how he used himself in this. This great scene in the hallway where he has rounded up the transvestites that Ed Wood has requested, and they're outside of the hallway of George Weiss's office. And this is the big scene where George is sort of pissed off that Ed has taken his idea for a movie and sort of turned it into what he doesn't yet understand is this personal Ed Wood story of Glenn or Glenda. Also, one of the very few scenes that's handheld to feel like a sort of antic sense of, you know, we're we're getting the show going now. And this is not in the screenplay. So I wonder if this was completely ad libbed by Bill Murray, because if you look at the faces of the uh, actors portraying the transvestites that he's talking to here in Round Robin, they look a little bit like they don't quite know what's coming. I, I suspect that Murray completely just did this on the fly. This is just a little bit of the scene here. They make you tall and you're flashy. They want that, okay? But they want professionalism. So Nick's on the Nelly without losing naivete, okay? Now, the good news is you're probably going to get hired because you look like Peggy Lee. But I don't want anybody else to resent that, okay? Please, because there's enough for everybody. Exotics, too. David, if you're not going to smile, please don't bother, all right? You'll embarrass me. This is George Weiss. He's done some very important things. He's a nice person. I thought you were going to make a sex statement. That's great. I mean, I can see Bill Murray coming up with Nicks on the Nelly. Oh, my God. (laughs) Keep the naivete. And the the Bill Murray thing to me is just when he's like, and and that's okay. I don't want anyone to get resentful of that. I mean, he's just such a great little addition sprinkled throughout here. Um, Yeah. And usually usually Bill Murray's got a little bit of like, um, you know, a wry knowingness in his mm -hmm, eyes or mm -hmm, in his delivery about what he's saying. And and, and in Ed Wood, it feels like it's much more understated and sincere. I agree. I agree. And when you watch the actual scene in um, in Plan 9, um, is it him or is it Criswell who's playing? the? It's him. Yeah, it's him. It's It's very it's very spot on. Like he's doing like they all do. They all really do the scenes from Plan 9 without winking, which is which is such a cool thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what's great also in the writing is, is there's a moment with Bunny at the rap party for Bride of the Monster where he's talking about all the things that went wrong, um, <laughs> you know, in, in Mexico for his sex change yes. sojourn. And <laughs> you, what's what's really subtle and funny that that I don't even like a lot of people probably don't even catch, but which tells you a lot about the character himself is that the first thing he says, normally he, you, you think he'd say, you know, it, it all went wrong and they couldn't do it. And then, you know, we were driving and he we got in a crash and he died. No, he said the first thing he says is we got in a crash. He died. Yeah. And then the doctor was a quack, like the most important thing. Yeah, he doesn't bury the lead. He's just like, I, I had to I go back and watch that over. I, I actually watched that again because I was like, wait, he didn't just say that the guy died, did he? Did he start with that? And <laughs> yeah, that's the first thing. And then these over. other terrible it's things. It's not the most <laughs> important thing. These people are narcissists. <laughs> oh, my God. And, he's, and if not for these men, and it, there's, he's pointing to a mariachi band that he has with him. Um, this yeah. is another great, just quick little moment. I love the baptism scene and Murray's the part in this. Well, the great G.D. Spradlin as the preacher. Praise who's... the Lord, brother. 
Do you reject Satan and all his evils? Sure. <laughs> the sure the is so good. Great. He holds his nose before he goes under. And he does a great bit of physical comedy. G.D. Spradlin cannot keep a straight face. If you watch this, Again, oh, I have to watch again to see he, to see if he, he's, he if he's broken. Going up. He, he broke up. It's and he doesn't quite know what Murray's going to do. Um, it's just again, it's a great deployment of Bill Murray uh, to to add this to end. Yeah, there. Um, and I, I I think I mean I would have met. Oh no, maybe this is because he was down in Mexico. Because Bill Murray is not in every single scene with the menagerie of you know of Ed's crew. No, he's no. They use him very sparingly, they but do. when they do, it really hits. Um, and I was thinking, well, maybe that's just because Bill Murray was like, listen, I have I have a week. Shoot me in and out of this thing. I have to go do something else. But yeah. I don't know. Now, I wanted to ask you about Lisa Marie, because I'm a little bit of two minds. On the one hand, um, she was involved with Tim Burton at the time. And um, she does resemble Vampira. Um, and it's hard to say that her acting isn't up to snuff in a film that is about people whose acting is not up to snuff. So it's, it's, it's unfair to say, you know, she's not the level of actor as a Martin Landau or a Bill Murray or a Sarah Jessica Parker or a Patricia Arquette or a Johnny Depp, but something about her takes me out of the film every time her scenes are on screen. And I wish because they intimate this when she sort of suffers a career setback of her own, and they're sitting around a table and he's pitching Ed is pitching her on being in his film. And she sort of suggests, could we just do it where I don't say anything? So people don't recognize that I'm in the movie. <laughs> I thought that would yeah. have been almost an interesting choice to do with the character to kind of work around the fact that to me, it's kind of glaringly obvious that she's just not, she's not the caliber of actor that she's surrounded with. And it just, it's just one of these things. Well, the great, the great irony the great, great irony, Jason, of Lisa Marie in this movie is it is a movie about how, you know, you either have to put your financier's son in the movie to get the <laughs> to, to, to get the, uh, you know, financing or there's just nepotism and favoritism yeah. going on or all around with the director. movie as a joke. <laughs> yeah. And here we have the actual director putting in his girlfriend. <laughs> I mean, it's I guess crazy. It's a, I guess it's an uber meta moment that maybe Tim Burton was aware of. I don't know. Um, yeah, or just didn't care. I mean, honestly, you know, ultimately it's like Tim yeah. Burton was probably like, she's good enough. She's my girl. I want her with yeah. me when I'm making this yeah. movie and I have to make her happy. And fair uh, enough. Why not? Sure. <laughs> I mean, which is what Ed is doing with uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, with Dolores, right? Like That's right. Or exactly. trying to until he exactly. overthrows her for, for what he thinks is money. The interesting thing about Dolores is in... in I think the movie is constructed so that we empathize obviously with Ed, that Ed is our way through this movie. But for most people watching this movie, they would, if you were actually in the world of this movie, uh, you know, and you were, you're an average person, you would be looking at Ed's lifestyle and his menagerie and, and, and his pursuits and the way he goes about them and his peccadillos, you know, all of that stuff, much the same way that Dolores, especially in the fifties, is looking at Ed's life and all of these people. As she says at the end, you know, you've surrounded yourself with freaks, you know, obviously from the from a 1950s perspective. And yet, you know, uh, we're she's cast as the villain, which is so interesting. The average Joe is cast as the villain and the heroes are the outcasts. I think that's so interesting. 
that's the world of Tim Burton, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what he gravitates towards, which is kind of funny for being, as far as I read, sort of a, he's, he's a child of LA, isn't he? Wasn't he like born? He's like one of the few people actually born and raised in Burbank or somewhere. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But, but all of his, all of his films are about that sense that I think is universal to all of us in our teenage years and maybe throughout, which is, you know, we're the freaks, we don't belong. And then that awareness that slowly dawns on you that, oh, no, no, you're, you're the ones that have something interesting to say and conformity is the boring choice. I guess in that sense, you know, that's the connection you're making to sort of Warhol and his collection of damaged, quote unquote, freaks, right, which are. Uh, in the Warhol view and the Ed Wood view in our view here as we're talking about the movie, that, that those are the interesting people. And um, Tim Burton recast or, 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 or you know, um, reestablish this menagerie, Ed's menagerie, mm-hmm. as stars in much the way Warhol tried to, you know, make his yeah. people superstars. It's, it's, it's putting those people on a pedestal who wouldn't normally be up there. And I, like, and I like watching the Ed Wood films that you can all, you know, you can watch these all for free on YouTube. And knowing this little cast of players makes it all the more fascinating to check them out. And you'll you'll love if people haven't seen uh, the Edward documentary. I mean, Vampira Mala Nuri. I mean, it's such a bizarre, interesting, strange person in her interviews, yeah. truly eccentric in a brilliant way. Very um, eccentric. And and. But and Dolores is Dol- true to true to her character, very normal, you know, yeah. uh, you know, just just a, a normal older woman who had a career separate from Ed Wood. I think it's interesting that she ran off and went to the most conventionally <laughs> artist, you know, conventional artists place that you could have gone. She went to the Brill Building yeah. right in New York City to 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 write pop songs mm-hmm. for Elvis. Yeah. The most mainstream thing you could have done mm-hmm. coming from the most non mainstream place of Ed's world. It's so interesting. And was very good at it. I mean, very successful songwriter, like, yeah. you know, had bona fides in the, in the business. So we all love rock a hula baby and do the clap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interestingly, this film didn't do well when it came out, uh, which kind of surprised to me because of course I just think of it in the pantheon of great films. But when I was reading about the making of um, it's critically, it was critically acclaimed but it didn't do big business. Uh, I guess 94, I'd have to put myself back to 1994. It was probably such an anomaly at its time, maybe, that it just was so so unique and, and different. I think it was, and it's it's not it's not a studio programmer. I mean, it's 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 not a mainstream film in any way, shape, or form. And and you know, some of the greatest movies in history haven't done well. You know, uh, mm-hmm. going all the way back. Fittingly to Citizen Kane, which was not a which was not a box office hit. It's a Wonderful Life, not a box office hit. Right. Fight Club, you know, Zodiac, which you so eloquently, uh, you know, did an exegesis on, not a box office hit. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of movies like that. And but this will be remembered. This the, will be remembered. The, um, what's his name playing Orson Welles in the scene? Um, oh, Vincent D'Onofrio. Vincent and you know what's funny about that? He's play and he looks like him. That's not his voice. I know. That is the voice of Maurice LaMarche, who I knew many years ago as a voiceover actor in L.A. and is is famously the voice of the brain in Pinky and the Brain. No. And the brain is Orson Welles, essentially. <laughs> the Orson Welles Oh, my God. Voice. You're blowing my mind right now. I never put that yep. together. Oh, that was almost as thrilling as our swirling whirlpool of fun back in the lab, right? <laughs> You've been playing in the toilet again, haven't you, Pinky? Yep. Um, yeah, that that I was thinking, couldn't you blend a little of D'Onofrio's voice in with Martin's voice so that it there's just something fascinating talking about meta-ness in movies. 
I mean, the whole the whole concept of sound in the movie is fake anyway, right? Like, it's not really your voice coming out of your mouth when we're watching a movie. It's sure, recorded. It's all an illusion. Yeah. Total illusion. Yet, so fascinating that when you replace an actor's voice, it's so noticeable. Um, it's very noticeable to me that his voice has been dubbed over. Yes. And yeah, it always was. And I wonder if there's a way to do that a little bit better. Like, could you could you kind of blend a little D'Onofrio in or maybe that wouldn't do anything? I don't know. But it does take me out of that scene a little bit. I, I think they honestly I don't I don't know if he was going for that that sort of strange sense that this disembodied voice sort of thing or not. I just think they botched the ADR. I don't think you could actually blend mm. Vincent D'Onofrio's voice in with Maurice LaMarche. They're so different. Mm-hmm. And clearly, like they had Vincent D'Onofrio try an Orson Welles impression, yeah. and it was probably just so bad. Maybe didn't they got a well. guy who really sounds like him. But they botched the ADR because the lips just don't match <laughs> at all. It's really strange. Yeah, it is kind of funny. Uh, he does look like him, though, and it's a great scene. And I think it yeah. speaks actually to what you were talking about, the acceptance in Hollywood. Uh, Orson Welles doesn't bat an eye that there's a guy standing there in an Angora sweater and a, a skirt. Um, like, he, either he's so oblivious that it doesn't even register to him. Uh, but in the scene, he doesn't bat an eye that Ed Wood is wearing women's clothes. Yeah. Um, Cause he's an artist. He's, he's an artist. artist. Yes. And they have a great little conversation, which feels very real. I think the deployment of when Burton either directs the actors to be more on the real side of things. And it's particularly with Depp, right? Because there are moments where Depp has to be that sort of theatrical dialed up personality. And then there's other scenes where he has to be really, kind of available and vulnerable. And this is one of them, which, which I think he does incredibly, incredibly yeah, well. Yeah, but what's interesting is at the end of the scene too, all of that stuff you said, I, I, I totally agree with. What's interesting is at the end of the scene, this sort of patriotic music starts coming in, you know, to underscore yes. Ed's feelings of being galvanized and, right. and you know, and it almost takes on the feel, like the music almost sounds like an educational film yes. that you would see or a newsreel in a movie that would be t- telling you about news on the march or something like yes. that. It's uh it's, that's a it's good point. It's a strange use of uplifting music. From Maybe the it's, time. this is the music that's playing in Ed Wood's mind as he marches back to give the Baptists a piece of his mind, which is what happens that's after right. that scene. So he's doing that. I also wanted to play this really funny little bit. This is Johnny Depp talking about how he arrived at Ed Wood's voice. No. Let's ask, start with where did you develop the voice? The voice was a combination of a few different people for me. Um, first was, uh, it was it was sort of a combination of Ronald Reagan, um, that kind of blind optimism and enthusiasm, uh, or the, also the enthusiasm and the sort of salesmanship quality that Casey Kasem has. Um, and uh, the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Not where you would well, have probably. Yeah, he does that. That he does that weird stuff. It's like in that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory yes. where he was doing Michael Jackson or right, something like right. that. He just makes a choice and sticks with it. Yeah, it's 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 so good. Oh, the one thing I wanted to mention, I've always been a big fan of Ed Wood's book Hollywood Rat Race, which people should look for. It is probably the smartest short instructional manual for trying to make it in Hollywood that you'll yet read. 
wow, I have to get a copy of that. I yeah, don't think I've ever a, read that. I don't know if it was published in his lifetime, but I picked it up maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And I've just always had it on my shelf and I was glad to be able to pull it down and reread it. And it's short. It's maybe 120 pages. And so it, will it will it help me make it in Hollywood or it will, will completely undo everything no, I've you're built gonna, to this point? You are going to underline everything in the book that you've already <laughs> been through. And it's it's it, it actually, I mean, to your point, it's it's so smart about what you're going to face if you think you're going to go to Hollywood and try to make it. Um, right. It's written primarily from the perspective of the person who wants to be an actor. And he so brilliantly starts back from when you're in grade school and you're in high school and you're in all the shows at your high school. And so you think you've got something. And he's particularly good at all of the uh, sort of fringe characters which don't really exist maybe so much anymore but you know the people offering to take your headshots or put you on film for the studios to look at and sort of people taking advantage of want to be uh actors uh but then he goes through the whole process of being in a movie making a movie and all the pitfalls that can happen with the studio and the release it's really a smart little book and people should look for it. I think it's um, it deserves to be part of Ed Wood's legacy because it's uh, something that he wrote quite well. Um, I'm going to pick it up now. So pick that's, that up that's on really your way to uh, read. Yeah. I mean, uh, in conclusion for me, I'll just say, you know, I think Ed Wood for people who haven't seen it is just such a beautiful homage to the love of movies yes. and what it does to you and what it makes you do and what it does to the people around you when you <laughs> pursue it blindly. Yes. So it's great. So if you watch this and you still want it, you probably have what it takes. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. All right, Brad, thank you so much for joining me. I hope we get to do this again. I know you're off to Canada for, for it for quite a while. Uh, yeah. I'm going to be, I'm going to be going with my, uh, uh, with my co-show runner, um, uh, a wonderful writer named Jason Fuchs, writer, producer, actor named Jason Fuchs to uh, to make a show, I believe, very, very soon. So um, but I'll still be listening to your show. I love your show. <laughs> I appreciate that so much. Thank you for coming on. And um, I'm going to have a lot of fun putting this together and it'll be out uh, next week. So thank you again for joining me, Brad. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank All you, right, Jason, for having me. All right. Take care.